Amen. As you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and find your Bible, open it up, or turn it on. Uh, we're going to be in two different parts of the Bible today, so if you have uh, one hand in Psalm, and then if you have a bookmark, we'll also be in Luke chapter 19 today as well. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question for you to begin pondering. Is it a sin to be angry? Is it a sin to be angry? Well, today we continue our series, What is Your Favorite Psalm? And uh, these psalms have been requested by two people, Robert Kale, our, uh, our bass player over here. There he is right there. And Amy Cummings also requested uh, these particular psalms. These are what we call the imprecatory psalms. And uh, you might discover that they are a little bit unusual. You say, well, what is an imprecatory psalm? Well, the word imprecatory means to invoke or to call down upon someone, particularly calling down misfortune or judgment upon another person. Now, if you've watched the news this week, you heard a lot of imprecatory comments along the way, regardless of what side you were on. So you're familiar with the idea where people begin to call down misfortune upon another. And the book of Psalms is one of the most beautiful books in the entire Bible. The book of Psalms is all over the Mardell's Joanna Gaines section. You know, probably in your home, somewhere, there's a coffee mug, there's a wall plaque, there's something that has a psalm on it. In fact, how many of you would say, all right, somewhere in my house right now, there's displayed something with a psalm on it? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of those beautiful language that has ever been written. I would venture to guess that none of us have imprecatory psalms displayed upon our walls because they give a little bit of a different flavor to the psalms. Here, here's what I mean. I'll, I'll show you. Uh, in Psalm chapter 5, uh, let's look at verse 3 of Psalm 5. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. I really like the way the King James translates this. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Beautiful, isn't it? Now, drop down to verse 10. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. That's an imprecatory psalm right there. So you have the same psalm, and you have the, the beauty, and then you also have the imprecatory nature there in Psalm 5. Now go over to Psalm 17. Let's look at Psalm 17 here, and we'll start uh, with verse 8. And it says, Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Now a lot of translations here say, Protect me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. It's beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. And then you drop down to verse 13. Rise up, Lord, confront him. Bring him down with your sword. Save me from the wicked. Now let's go on over to Psalm 69. I've told you David's a complicated guy, isn't he? So he'll write some of the most beautiful language you've ever heard, and then he'll also have some language that is very stout 
and very, very strong. So here's Psalm 69 and verse 13. But as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me with your sure salvation. One of the more quoted psalms of the entire Bible. And then we drop down to verse 22, same psalm. Let their table set before them be a snare. Let it be a trap for their allies. Let their eyes grow too dim to see, and let their hips continually quake. Pour out your rage on them, and let your burning anger overtake them. Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. So are you understanding now uh, imprecatory psalms? They are these prayers, these cries that David calls out for God to pour down his judgment and pour down his wrath upon people. So this leads to a lot of confusion for some people, particularly because if you go over to the New Testament, you find Jesus actually quoted some of these psalms, and so did the Apostle Paul. So the the Christian might be led to ask the question, what gives here, Lash? Are we supposed to love our neighbor, love our enemies, turn the other cheek? Or are we as Christians supposed to rain down wrath upon the insidious pleasures and hideous injustices within our world? Is it a sin to be angry? Now, to answer that question, let's go over in our New Testament to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. The scene is a mountain hillside. You've probably seen one on television before, or maybe you've walked one along the way. There's a winding path that leads down the mountain, and along the path comes Jesus riding on a donkey. He is about to enter Jerusalem to begin what we call the Passion Week. And the word begins to spread that the Messiah is entering Jerusalem. And so the people begin a makeshift triumph. You've probably seen triumphs in some of those old Roman movies. When the general would return or when the emperor would return, The people would line the streets, and they would celebrate. Confetti would fall. We are the champions would play. Well, not that that part, but, you know, everybody would celebrate, and they would welcome the king back into the city. So here, they are welcoming Jesus as their new king, as their Messiah, into the city of Jerusalem. And you can imagine being a part of that scene. And in verse 41, there's, there's an interesting line. You almost hydroplane right over it, Luke 19, 41, as he approached and saw the city, what does it say he did? He wept over it. Now, this is in the middle of a party. People are celebrating, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody is excited. Jesus is coming. This is the Messiah they prayed for. We will make him king. He'll overthrow Rome. Everything will be great. This will be a new beginning. And you find Jesus looking at the city from a distance, and he begins weeping. If you break down the word, this is not the sniff little kind of cry. This is like an all-out cry. Well, why was Jesus weeping? Well, if he looked back, he could remember all that God had done for Israel. He could remember the exodus where God led them out of bondage, the journey to the promised land, 
the glory years of David and Solomon. All the prophets had warned the people to keep their faith and to stay strong towards the Lord. And so as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he could look back and he could remember all the heritage and all the history. Do you ever do that? Look back at what was and grieve a bit. Think about whenever the kids were little. You think about the good old days, whatever. The good old days are basically whatever generation you grew up in, right? Isn't that kind of how it works? And you just kind of grieve whenever you think about the past. Well, then I think Jesus also looked around. He saw a lot of hurting people. These people were, were poor people for the most part. They had deep spiritual needs. And unfortunately, they were interested in earthly solutions, not spiritual ones. At this point, their idea of what the Messiah would be was very earthly driven. They wanted him to be a king who would overthrow Rome. In fact, when Jesus refused to take up that mantle, that is when the crowd began to turn upon him, and the same crowd that would welcome him into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week would be part of the crowd that was yelling, crucify him, crucify him, at the end of the week. And then he could look forward, and he knew that one day soon it was going to come crashing down. As believers, whenever we see people trying to solve eternal solutions with temporal realities, it causes our hearts to grieve because we realize that the day comes when you can no longer put off the inevitable. And so Jesus said in verse 42, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and they will crush you and your children within you, within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's pretty imprecatory, isn't it? And who's it coming from? Jesus. Fast forward 40 years and verse 43 actually happens. The Romans besiege the city of Jerusalem. They kill 600,000 people. They sell many of them into slavery. They burn the temple. They destroy the holy city. And Jesus knew that the party that was going on was temporary and soon that it was all going to come crashing down. Why? Verse 44. Don't miss verse 44. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. It's very important that you don't miss those moments when God comes to visit, when God presses up against your heart. Isn't it funny how life comes down to these little moments in time, these little, these little simple moments in time that can define a whole bunch of life? I remember the first time I ever called the lovely Stacy Baker Banks. One of her friends had given me her phone number. That was, what, 26 years ago now? That first call in January is back in the 90s. I had my big mullet. And I, didn't, I didn't really have a mullet. My, I can't grow a mullet. I just grow, my, my hair just grows puffy. So, but it was in the 90s, so I got my phone out, you know, dialed it in. And then back then, you know, you had to, you had to hit that, that, that send button and go, you know. And so I remember, okay, and hit it. And, uh, and she picked up on the other line, hello. And, uh, and so the rest, as they say, is history. But what if I had never dialed that number? Is that one moment in time where, where things changed? 
I remember uh, the first time I ever received an email from the pastor search committee at Murphy Road Baptist Church, and they were wanting to talk with me a little bit more, and so we began praying about this and going online trying to discover, okay, what is Murphy Road Baptist Church? And I remember we drove down here, and it was on Sunday afternoon, and we drove in that entrance and went through the parking lot, and it was during the middle of Awana. And so people were like waving at us, and we were like, you know, we're not supposed to be seen right now, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, but but that, that email, that moment, was one of those trajectory-changing times in our lives. And, and life often comes down to these little moments in time, and frequently part of those moments in times are this, are you going to follow God or are you going to miss the visit? Are you going to do what you're supposed to do or are you going to turn the other way. And I just want to ask you, this is a little bit of a parenthesis in the message today, but I just want to ask you this question because it may land right where you're living right now. Are you missing the visit? Is God trying to get your attention about something, speaking to your heart, and are you listening? Don't miss those moments in life where God really speaks deeply into your soul. Well, that night, Jesus stayed with some friends in the little village of Bethany, and early the next morning, he came down the hillside, and he once again entered Jerusalem, and the Bible says in verse 45 that he goes into the temple complex, and he began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, this is a little bit of an unexpected reaction, isn't it? So you find yesterday, Jesus riding down the hillside looking at Jerusalem, and he's crying over Jerusalem, and now he's, he's, he appears to be angry. He's throwing people out of the house of worship. I mean, imagine if Paul Reed, who's standing back there at the back, came running up to the front and started throwing chairs around and telling all the ushers to get out. Imagine the wild scene that that would be at that point. Jesus is having somewhat of an imprecatory moment. So question, is anger a sin? And if so, was Jesus caught up in his anger here and caught up in sin? Well, if you say yes, then your whole theology basically just plunged into the ocean at that point. The answer is no. Anger is a natural human emotion. But now stick with me, because we all know this to be true. It can often lead you to do things that are sinful. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. If you find yourself becoming angry about something, do not let that lead you to a sinful behavior. It encourages us not to let the sun go down upon our wrath. You see, when anger begins to fester within you, when anger begins to just uh, take up residence in your heart, it often leads you to bitterness, and then you're no longer just angry at a particular situation. Now you're just angry at everything. Everywhere you go, every word you speak just drips with a little bit of anger. There are times, though, where it's natural to get a little bit angry. There's times where... Uh, there is what is called theologically, you ready for a good theological word? Righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. So 
why was Jesus having righteous indignation there in the temple? Well, if you go back and study history, the temple was a magnificent structure, one of the wonders of the world. I mean, one of the, one of the places that people wanted to see in their lifetime. And it was divided into various courts. Each of these courts had progressively closed access. Well, the outer court was called the Gentile court. Theologically, the Gentile court was supposed to be the missionary engine of the temple. It didn't matter your race, your gender, your economic status. It didn't even matter whether or not you were a follower of Yahweh. You could go to the Gentile court, and there you could learn about God. It was also supposed to be a place where you could ask questions, you could pray, you could worship, you could sing, you could serve others. But over time, that area of the temple, particularly during the Passover week, had degenerated in what, into what they called the bazaar, the bazaars of Annas. It was kind of like a big state fair. You see, the Passover was a time where people would come to Jerusalem from all over the world. Now, one of the things that they would do whenever they came is they would pay their sacrifices, and they would make animal sacrifices. Now, you could imagine if you were told that you have to go from Dallas to Austin by foot, or if you're really lucky, you get to ride a donkey, uh, that it would be a little bit of a hassle to bring your own animals. So, what they determined, some businessmen came up with an idea. And so they got in a huddle, and they came up with an idea. Here's what we will do. You see, when the people brought the animals, they had to be approved anyway. And what a bummer it is when you carry an animal 200 miles only to find out that it's flawed. So the businessmen came up with this idea. We will take people's money from wherever they come in the world, and we'll convert it into our own money, and then we will sell them pre-approved animals. In theory, it makes sense, right? Seems convenient. So why did Jesus get so upset with this? Well, a few reasons. Number one, the money changers had become very, very corrupt. These individuals that would come to worship, they were often poor and uneducated. They didn't have the Wailing Wall Street Journal. They didn't know what the currency rate was from their currency to the Jewish currency, and so they would often be taken advantage of in that way. The money changers were robbing them blind, and guess what they were doing with the extra money? Pocketing it. Secondly, the animals were being sold at ridiculous prices. You ever been at a pro sporting event or a college sporting event, and you go to the concession stand? You're like, really? $4.75 for a Coca-Cola? Man, that's just robbery, isn't it? Well, that's what they were doing. They were charging them outrageous prices for the animals. And now here was the biggie. There was no worship going on in the Gentile courts. Rather than worshiping, rather than learning about God rather than being a place where anybody could come from anywhere in the world to learn about Yahweh, the Gentile courts had been turned into a fair. The Passover week 
was a lot of fun for people. There was a big meal. It was a celebration of their freedom. It was a time where they would see family and friends. I would imagine it was a highlight of the entire year filled with a lot of laughter. And hear me well on this. There is nothing wrong with Christians having fun. There's nothing wrong with having a pumpkin patch or having a barbecue, celebrating Christmas with some cookies and hot apple cider. There's nothing wrong with Christians laughing and smiling. After all, our Savior's alive, right? But it was also supposed to be a sacred time. You came to the temple. You prayed. You sang. You gave your offerings. You humbled yourself. You worshiped God. And here in the Gentile courts, the people were so far from God that uh, there wasn't even room left for people to ask questions or for new believers to be engaged. Think about the tragedy. Instead of hearing prayers, they heard a sales pitch. Instead of seeing worship, they saw corruption. And it angered the Son of God to the point He threw them out. Jesus had an imprecatory, righteous indignation moment. So what do we learn? Let's go back to the Psalms here for a little bit. What do we learn about these imprecatory moments in the Bible? Let me give you several things. Number one, we learn that anger is a natural human emotion. Anger is a natural human emotion. When Christians see tragedies, when you see things like women and children being abused, when you hear of people living in slavery, when you hear about some of these dark injustices that are in the world, it stirs up within us a certain amount of righteous indignation. You know, the Apostle Paul sometimes had some strong language He wrote a letter one time to a young pastor by the name of Titus. You remember the book of Titus? And he told Titus, if someone goes into the church and they intentionally try to divide the church within itself, you warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you have nothing to do with them. That's pretty imprecatory, isn't it? Why? Because as Christians, we need to guard the righteousness of God and those things which are pure. But there are many times when people may do something or say something that makes you angry. And there are even some times when you've been given the authority to do something about it. There's times where, through the course of life, you are given the responsibility to be an agent of justice, to stand for that which is right. And there are some things in life that should stir within us a little bit of righteous indignation. So let me ask you this question. What stirs within you some righteous indignation? Hmm? You don't have to answer it out loud. And let's don't go political today. Okay? Say, I'm already there mentally. Right? What stirs within you righteous indignation? Secondly, we learn that it's okay to bring your raw emotions before God. It's part of what I really love about King David. He was honest. He was open. One, one moment, he's writing some of the most beautiful language ever written. The next moment, he's just pouring out his heart before God. 
And we sometimes think that being a Christian means we always have it all together. Or we think that prayer means that we come before the Lord, O magnificent, wonderful Elohim, God, Thou that hung the universe, Thou, and, and we use all this language and we always have to have everything together. But there are times where you just come before the Lord and you're emotional and you're a little raw and this is how I feel. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Please take this cup from me. The humanity of Jesus was just pouring out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now he ended the prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But it's okay to be emotional sometimes. It's okay to bring some of those raw emotional emotions before God. When you come before God and you're upset about something, God doesn't sit up in heaven and say, man, I didn't know that. Hey, thanks for telling me. I didn't realize that you were upset about this. I, did, I didn't realize this is how you felt. Man, this is news to me. Did anybody know about this? Did anybody know they were upset? I mean, God already knows. So bring those emotions before God, but remember that ultimately prayer bends our will to the Holy Spirit's will. And don't forget that last part of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. These passages of Scripture also remind us that God is both loving and holy. Now, you've heard me talk before about the tug-of-war of the holiness of God and the love of God. God is completely holy. He is completely pure. He is transcendent of sin. He must in some way deal with sin, and yet God is also loving in every way, so that First John says God is love, and in the imprecatory Psalms, you see this reality as David moves back and forth between the love of God and the holiness of God, and in years of pastoring, I've seen this within God's people, that some of you are more naturally wired to understand God through the lens of holiness, and some of you are more naturally wired to understand God through the lens of love. But God is both. He's holy, and He's loving. And His holiness and love, theologically, can't just be separated from one another. They're actually linked. Because He's holy, He's loving. Because He's loving, He's holy. They actually go together. But generally, I think it's good to be honest with ourselves because you probably lean one way or the other. Anybody willing to admit you're more of a God is holy person? Okay, anybody say I'm more of a God is loving person? Yeah, and God, you're, you're right. God is holy and he's loving. God's holiness demands justice. God's justice is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as believers, God's love is a gift of grace that is experienced through the power of Christ. But we stand in grace, as Romans chapter 5 says. We are able to come boldly before the throne of God, as Hebrews says, because the justice of God, the wrath of God for our sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for you and me and overcame death so that we might have life, not in our own good behavior, but in Him. See, so this is one of the unique, unique uniquenesses of Christianity. The call of Jesus was not, hey, here's my teachings, now go and behave better. 
the call of Jesus was place your faith in me. Believe in me. Trust in me. And I'll change you from the inside out. And so in Jesus, we see both the holiness of God and the love of God entwine. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's pretty, isn't it? The Lord's not wanting any to perish. He, he wants you to come to faith. But then verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And so as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he saw the situation, he was moved with compassion because he also knew what was coming. And as he walked into the temple and he saw what had happened to what was supposed to be a place of worship, he was moved with righteous indignation because it angered him that the house of God had been turned into, Jesus' own words, a den of thieves. Fourthly, the imprecatory Psalms remind us of our complete dependence on the gospel. All right, so when you read the Bible, read the Old Testament, one of the things that you discover is that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And you see that over and over again. You even read some of the stories of the heroes of the Old Testament, and you're like, oh man, this guy's amazing. Look at this. He's staring a giant in the eye. He's trusting God to that degree. Oh, he's killing a man and stealing his wife. You know, these, these moments of vacillation between the, the love of God and the holiness of God, the greatness of God and, and, the, and the strength of God, and, and the, you kind of you move back and forth, and it, it all leads us to this understanding that ultimately we are totally, completely dependent upon the gospel. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves. We need God to intervene into our scene, to send Jesus to live the life that we could never live, to die upon the cross for our sins, to overcome the scourge of death, to extend salvation through himself to all people so that all might believe. And we also need Jesus to come again so that the shalom of creation might be restored and the presence of sin might be dealt with once and for all. So remember this. Here's, here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that for many of you, this has been a week full of up and down emotions, right? Remember this. Earthly solutions to eternal problems never work. Earthly solutions to eternal problems never work. I'm not telling you not to work hard. I'm not telling you not to stand for those things which are right. Be, be a person of transformation in this world. Paul dealt with this in other parts of the New Testament because some of the believers thought, well, if Jesus is going to come back and there's nothing we can really do about it, maybe we should just go out on the hillside and wait and just do nothing. He said, no, you need, you need to serve me now. But ultimately, remember this, that earthly solutions to eternal problems never work. 
The realities of life prove time and time again that we are in desperate need of the gospel. And that's what the gospel is really all about. It's a new beginning in Jesus Christ. Old things pass away. All things become new. You and I can be reconciled with God. Marriages can be healed. Communities can be restored. Churches can have mission and unity. Love can flow in our relationships and attitudes when the gospel takes root within our hearts. Christ died so that you and I can be changed, not just for a moment, but forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. I want to remind you today, if, if today needs to be the day where you trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, if God is leading you to take next steps with this church, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I know things are unusual right now with the at home and feel free to send me an email pastor at murphychurch.com if you're here in person i'll be here after the service as well and would love to talk to you about wherever it is that god is working in your life right now heavenly father we bow our heads before you and lord we see in the psalms of david the complexity of life we see that Sometimes the most beautiful moments of life are also mixed with the great pain of life and that it's difficult to separate them. That life doesn't run on one set of tracks that goes up and down, but life runs on these parallel tracks where there is both blessing and hardship moving at the same time. And it's easy, Lord, to get caught up in the hardship or to get prideful in the blessing. Help us, Lord, to be humble Help us, Lord, to trust in you. In those matters over which you've given us responsibility, may we stand for that which is right. Lord, may we also remember that we are completely and totally dependent upon you. And we thank you, Lord, for the gospel that changes everything. May it be our focus. May it be our hope. May it be the language upon our lips. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.